0: Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in, your, in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with the marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe
1: seated. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Lord, thank you for those words that Dan read that you give to us, so alive and vibrant uh, from the heart of David and alive and vibrant to us now, given to us as a gift. They are living and active because it's your word. We pray that we would be open to your shaping power in our life this morning and that we would hear from you uh, speaking in and through your word in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, Psalm 63 this <clears throat> excuse me, this, seemed, this could be like a, a journal entry for someone. It seems a very intimate and, and maybe the, one of the most tender psalms in the entire Psalter uh, where David is talking about his own heart and his own longings. And sometimes I have a, a good opening illustration, tell a story to bring you in. I'm, you know, um, that's a good thing for a preacher to do. I don't have that this morning, in part because I was so taken by something in this psalm, I just couldn't get my head around it, and I wanted to, to front end it and billboard it. There's something in this psalm, a single phrase, that I think is one of the most incredible phrases in all the psalms, maybe in all of the scripture, and I try not to to use pastoral preacher hyperbole, you know, sometimes I do that, but uh, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating this, this really is an incredible reality if we grasp it or if we let it grasp us, and something that I think could be paradigm shifting for us as the people of God. So if for the literary nerds among us, Psalm 63 is broken up into three stanzas, Uh, called Strophes, if you really want to nerd out. And the first stanza is structured in what we call a chiastic structure. I'll stop saying these type of words in just a second. But a chiastic structure is an embedded parallelism where one part parallels another part in in order, uh, and then it comes to a point and then moves back out of the chiasm. I've structured, I, I outlined it in your insert, the top part of it, to see the parallelism, whereas the second part of verse one and verse five are in parallel, verse two and verse four. And then it comes to a point in verse three, in in a chiasm, okay, last time I'll say it, in, in that structure, that point of it is often the main point of what's going on. And that, verse 3, is what I just was captivated by this week. It is a simple phrase, and when we hear it in church, it kind of just goes by us. We hear it as church words, church words, Bible words, Bible words, but here it is. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Loving kindness is better than life. So the psalmist has just said, you know, there's something better than my life. What do we say that about? What are the implications of saying something is better than life? Now, the loving kindness of God... Your loving kindness is better than life. My concern when I read that for myself or when you hear it is that what we hear when we hear loving kindness of God or some the translation will say steadfast love of God. The NIV just says love of God. By the way, this is the New American Standard version here. Usually I use the ESV. I felt like the NAS, the New American Standard, captured the, the verse divisions a little bit better. But my concern is when we hear loving kindness, we actually hear something like, the really, really nice love of God. Or the, the really, really niceness of God. The real tenderness and compassion of God. It's really, really good. Because, and it's understandable that we would do that, because I know what love is. I, Roger can love, kind of, sometimes. And sometimes I actually do it pretty well. Not always. But I, I reason, okay, I kind of know what love is. Therefore, what God is, when it says God is love, he's just better than me in that and when I falter I don't do it all the time he does it all the time so basically when I see the loving kindness of God I kind of think okay what that means is God is like me but just a lot better and more often we would be forgiven for for understanding that it comes to us naturally because we are made in the image of God and love is what theologians would call a communicable attribute you know, it's like a communicable disease. It's just something that's shared between what. This is a good thing that's communicated. A communicable attribute of God. God is, uh, is loving. He communicates that attribute to those made in his image. Therefore, we experience what love is and kind of reflect the love of God in some way. That doesn't mean, though, that our experience of love and God's experience of love is the same thing. And that God is just like, like us but a little bit better and all the time. Like I'm at 70%. He's at 100%. I'm sporadic but he's all the time. That's not what we're talking about. We do image God, we, do are, we are made in the image of God, so we know that love a little bit, but it's kind of like this. If you take your sermon insert out and put your hand over it, because the lights are above you, what's, what's shadowed down on your insert is, a, is an image of your hand. Now we are made in the image of God, that means we really and truly reflect him in some way, but not fully. Really and truly reflect them, but not fully. Like this shadow of my hand is a real and true image, or you could say reflection in a different way. A real and true reflection of my hand, but it's not a full reflection of my hand. For one thing, it's a two-dimensional reflection of a three-dimensional object. It can't capture my fingerprints or the complexity of the human hand that can do all kinds of things. And You have opposable thumbs, you have joints and ligaments and muscles and everything. It can't capture that. It's not that this shadow is bad, it's just that it's not full. It can't be full. Our experience of love in our own life is not bad. It is a reflection of God, but it's not, it's not a full reflection. So on, I put an asterisk by the word loving kindness, and down at the bottom of your insert, I put a little bit rounded out definition. The loving kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant love. That is the self-giving love of God to which he binds his covenant name, Yahweh, and makes covenant promises for his covenant people. It's not just like Roger loves, but a little bit better. What are we talking about? Here's the beginning of that, just the very bare beginning of that. That the God who creates all things, all things by speaking. All the things last week, we talked about the James Webb Space Telescope sending back. God made that by speaking. And holds all things together by the word of his power. By his will. And then we saw last week in Isaiah 40. He is so tender to know each of us in our frailty, specifically and different from you. That's different than you. That's different than me. That's different from you. He is so tender. Uh, powerful and so tender to do that. And then he's so immense, as we saw last week also. He can measure the wa- as if he could measure the waters in the hollow of his hand or mark off the universe by the span of his hand. He is tender, he is powerful, he's immense. And this God takes on human form, becomes truly human, and he gives himself for his people in our place by death, by dying on a cross. And then is resurrected and gives himself to his people, to you, to me. Jesus gives himself to us. And he makes promises to us. And he empowers us on a daily basis through his grace and by his spirit. And unites us to himself so that if we are united to Christ, as Darrell prayed about in our confession, we share in the same qualitative love the Father has for the Son. It's mind-blowing. And he promises us a future that we can't even imagine and then somehow raises us up with Christ, as it says in Ephesians 2, that you, United Christ, are already raised with him in some mysterious way so that, that all of that is just the prologue to the entire story of your life. and This is just the beginning description of covenant love. These are puny human words and concepts given to describe something that has a multidimensional beauty and power that we can begin to understand truly but never comprehend fully. Even if we kept growing in our ability to comprehend it through all eternity, there's still more of the loving kindness of God for us to comprehend than we have comprehended. My, that little description is kind of like the shadow <laughs> compared to the hand, except the, the hand is th- three-dimensional. the love of God is multidimensional. So that's when we, come, when we say loving-kindness," that's what we're talking about. But even all those words are just a pointer to the fullness of what that really is, of God's love for His people. Okay? Then it says, this loving-kindness is better than life. What have we really said is better than life? Any, anything, like literally said is better than life. The implications of that. That it's more valuable than life. The covenant love of God is more important than life. Bigger than life, longer than life, more weighty than Life. One thing is better than another. I pulled that this morning, actually I had my wife do it, out of our we have a little kid drawer in our kitchen. So little kids come and they know where that drawer is and they take and a bunch of hot wheel cars and balls and everything else in there. And this is a uh, Ford, I think it's a 1966, Ford GT40. This is the car I think Christian Bale drove in the movie Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, anyway, this is, uh, this is a Hot Wheels version of the real thing. So the real thing, there's only a couple of them left. There's only like 120 of them made ever. And you could buy the one now for like $3 million. Or you could buy this Hot Wheel car for 32 cents, right? So uh, you could say the real thing is better than this. Is anything wrong with this? It's bad? No, it's not bad. In fact, my little grandson loves it, right? But you would have to be an 18-month-old or a 20-month-old to think this is better than the real thing because that's an immature thought. That's a thought not born out of very much life experience. You, You would say that the actual Ford GT40 is much better than this. As we would say, the loving kindness of God is better than life. Nothing wrong with life itself, but in comparison... What David is making the case is something is far better than life. That means, the implications of that, friends. If we had to give up the most important things in our life to get the loving kindness of God, it would be a value. It would be like trading this for the real thing. Whoa, it'd be great. In fact, if we had to give up everything in our life, to get the loving kindness of God, it would be a deal. And even if it was more than that. By saying the loving kindness of God is better than life, it means this. If we could give up life, if we had to give up life itself to get the loving kindness of God, it would be a bargain. It would be a bargain. And when we have the one... When we have the loving kindness of God and appreciate it, it changes how we see the other. We could see, you know, talk to brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, some of the places we pray for on Sunday morning or other times in history, who, because of following Jesus, have lost a lot of worldly things. Because of following Jesus, they've put them out of step with the spirit of the age or the powers that be in their local government. And they've lost freedom, homes, dignity they've lost future security they may even have lost family and sometimes in that pressure cooker of suffering things become clear and we could go to those those friends those brothers and sisters and say something like i'm so sorry you've lost everything to follow jesus and sometimes clarity would set in and they could look us in the eye and say i've lost a lot and it's been painful On the other hand, I've lost nothing. Because what I have is so far more valuable than life, it is indescribable. Not that life is bad, just that what I have in the loving loving kindness of God is far surpassing. So the, the fact that the loving kindness of God is better than life is a beautiful promise and invitation, but friends, for you and me, it's also a terrible problem. One outvalues the other by an infinite degree. The loving kindness of God is better than life, like the, the original Ford GT40 is better than this. Nope, the owner of the Ford GT40 would not trade for this. It would never be a good deal unless you were 18 months old. And born out of Immaturity and a lack of experience of life. Nobody, my life isn't as valuable as the steadfast love of God. Therefore, I can't trade my life. Even if I gave up my life, it wouldn't be worth it. To, it wouldn't be an equal trade. Your life isn't that valuable. Nobody's life, except one, yes. is that valuable. The source of covenant love himself, the one who is covenant love, is that valuable. Jesus And he gives his life so that we may receive covenant love the only way that's appropriate. As a gift. As a gift. And if you were in Christ by faith, you have received something that you could, not that you could not earn because you couldn't do good enough. You weren't good enough. (laughs) We were in our perfection, we're not valuable enough to earn the covenant love of God. It's only received as a gift. And he generously gives his covenant love. And so if you're in Christ, great news. You've received the covenant love of God. So one more implication here. And we're spending a lot of time in this introductory concept and a lot of time in the first half of the psalm, and then we'll go fast. We won't be done at 3.30, I promise you. You'll be home for kickoff. Uh, the Colts game, the beginning of a very long season for the Colts. Um, <laughs> um because, so I'm going to represent it visually. The loving kindness of God, covenant love of God is better, it's higher than life, let's say, okay? I'm just visual represent. better than life. That means the joy that comes from the covenant love of God is superior to the joy that comes from life apart from the covenant love of God. Now, unfortunately, the only way you know this is to have the covenant love of God because we can be stuck down here apart from the covenant love of God saying, oh, it's really joyful until your eyes are open to the covenant love of God. And then you're like, David, like it's better than life. Right? So the covenant love of God has a joy that's better than the joy that comes from life apart from the covenant love of God. It has a motivation that's stronger than motivation that comes in life apart from the covenant love of God and a hope and a security and everything else. And all of this psalm in my mind is about answering one question, How do we respond to a love that is better than life? What is an appropriate, rational, reasonable response to a covenant love that is more important and valuable and more weighty than my life and yours? What we see here, an appropriate response pattern is at least this, seeking it earnestly, seeking the enjoyment of it earnestly is what I mean, holding fast and hoping defiantly so earnest seeking holding on and hoping in light of this covenant love now before we jump in here I want to say clearly I'm not talking about getting covenant love I'm not talking about receiving it the only way to receive this is a gift if you're in Christ you've received it I'm talking about laying hold of it in joy covenant love is something that lays hold of you by God's spirit but then He holds us, we lay hold of him. Um, We enjoy it. Here's how. Seeking it earnestly. Seek this, seek God earnestly, and therefore the enjoyment of this love earnestly. Psalm 63, the superscription there says, A psalm of David When he was in the wilderness of Judah, this is probably early on in David's uh, career, he's been uh, anointed king by the prophet Samuel. He has not yet been coronated king because Saul is still king. Saul, who is king, doesn't want to not be king. And the way he's going to solve that problem is to have David killed. So David's dead. He can't become the next king. Saul will stay in control. So he's hunting David. And David runs into the Judean wilderness with three, four hundred people with him who are his followers. And it's a miserable place. I was there a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was our tour group and nothing else. Why? Because nobody lives there. Because it's miserable. It's dry and weary, as David's going to say. It's just a hot place with a lot of rocks and a few scrubby plants. Uh, this is where David is. But he is desperate because he's powerless. He's on the wrong side of that whole power dynamic. Saul is in charge. He is uncertain. He doesn't know how long it's going to end. He doesn't know how to fix it. And he's responsible for all these people who've come with him. I don't know if he asked him to come or not, but like there they are. And he's kind of responsible for them. And his future and their future are bound together. It begins this way in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly, and then unfolds that. So at the very least, earnest seeking looks like this. First, it is seeking for a satisfaction of some kind. Look at those first two verses that are in parallel. The second part of verse 1 says this, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, and its partner verse that's paralleled with verse 5, My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. David's saying, I know at least this. I am made for something more than food and drink and success and relationship. I I I want to get out of this situation, but there's something deeper. I know there's more. There's a soul deep reality. He looks at his surroundings, which is a dry and weary land, and he's using this, I think, as an illustration to say, Lord, this is what I'm like apart from a grasping of your covenant love. This desert is what my life feels like. My soul, or that means life in Hebrew, uh, feels like. So he's like, I'm longing for a deep satisfaction that is in you that is deeper than this circumstance. It's not the first time David uses this language. If you look at the back of uh, your insert I put Psalm 34. This is just an example, a representative example of the way David especially talks, a very passionate man. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So he's looking, he he's looking for words like experiential words, like, oh God is so good. I want to taste and see. So God is beyond us. So sometimes we use experiential language and we can't quite. Used with precision, Just it's reaching for something. David's like, I know I made for more. There's a depth of God that I want. I want to press into that. Jesus picks this idea up, by the way. In John 4, when he meets the woman of Samaria at the well, she is not a, a, a Jewish woman. She's not a follower of Yahweh. She comes to the well, Verse John 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria, this is on the back of your insert. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink. They go on. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So what's being pointed out there, Jesus is like there's a universal longing in the soul of every human person for a satisfaction that is soul deep, that is almost beyond experiential words that only I can give, but a lot of people don't get it. Like this woman, she's like, well, can I have some of that water? Because I don't want to come back here at noon because it's really hot. We are made for that. That's why uh, famously St. Augustine said, you have made us for ourselves and our souls are restless until they rest in you you may know the story of St. Augustine. He was, before he was a Christian, he was popular, he was wealthy, he was well respected as an orator. He had many romantic twists with many different women. He had a lot of what the world calls satisfaction in all kinds of areas. He was successful, he was praised, he was loved, he had pleasure. And he said, It's nothing. All of that is just trying to fill my soul with something that can never satisfy me. It's a thirst that can never be slaked. It's a hunger that can never be satisfied with all these things. And he comes to Christ and he says, that's it. That's what I was looking for in the arms of all these women and in the praise of all these people and all these degree and all the success. And it's what we look for when we chase down jobs and chase down relationships and just want happiness and security and comfort at the cost of everything. It's just a thirst that can't be satisfied with anything else but Jesus. And I do it all the time. We're bent. We're broken. And then in John 7, well, actually, in Matthew 5, Jesus famously says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. There is a satisfaction. In John 7, Jesus says on the, it says them, talking to those who were following him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart, or out of my heart, Jesus says, will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus like, if you're spiritually thirsty, Come. Come. I will give you something. And John makes the note, he's talking about the spirit and the way the spirit was given after the resurrection. So that means, guys, you, if you're in Christ, who have the spirit of Jesus living in you, you have even more access to this hungering and thirsting reality than David did who wrote this psalm. It's remarkable. So maybe just before we go on, a self-assessment question is simply this. What does our life functionally show we're hungering and thirsting after? I can't answer that question for you. I can barely answer for myself after like an hour of meditation, but like what is, it's the right question. What does our life show we are hungering and thirsting after? And may those things, maybe are those pointers to a place where we earnestly pursue Christ in that area? I don't know the answer for you, but I think it's the right question. Sometimes in our culture, we have so much good stuff everywhere. Sometimes that's why we, we need to do things like fast. We need to stop eating for a while, which is oh, just almost American Christians almost never fast. It's a way to, to remind us that we're actually built for something deeper than food, better than food. The Bible talks about fasting from food. It talks about fasting from, from marital sexual intimacy for a while. In order to show yourself, actually, I'm made for a deeper reality. We might want to fast from entertainment, fast from your phone, fast from whatever. In order to remind ourselves, we're actually made for something, but we live in a land of plenty that we can just keep stuffing our soul with. So, for satisfaction, individually, oh God, verse 1, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. So, this is a personal message of a personal God. Yes, we experience God in community, but we are limited as people. We can can only seek God and find him by ourselves, and that's not a function of Western individualism. It's a function of being a person, right? We can only comprehend him ourselves. If I said you, so I was a little thirsty, so I took a drink of water right there. I've been talking here for a few minutes. This is my water. So it would be as if to saying, not to be heretical, but, oh, water, you are my water. I want to drink. This is my water, so I'm going to drink you. Because how can I satisfy that thirst in myself without me drinking the water? I can't. So I, um, my best friend and covenant partner in life, Carmen, my wife, we've been married almost 28 years. She knows me better than any person in the world. Anybody, she knows when I, I can't. I can't lie to her. I can't use hyperbole, which she knows. She knows everything. We're one flesh. If I handed her this water and she drank it, she would be satisfied. And I would still be thirsty. Because as close as we are, I have to drink that water myself. No one can seek the Lord earnestly for us but us. Can't do it. You can grow up in a great Christian family with mom and dad who love Jesus and you have to seek Jesus for yourself. Have to. I can't do it for you. Your church community can't do it for you. You must do it for you. And that's the exact thing that Jesus offers us. So, individually, but also in community. Verse two, and we'll move faster here. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. So I will bless you as long, uh, then verse four, parallel. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. So David looks back to a time where he remembers being in the sanctuary, in worship with God's people, and he, he misses it and he longs for that in the future. And this whole language around sight, I have seen your power and glory. I see you. It doesn't mean they actually saw God, right, physically with their eyes, but God's a spirit, doesn't have a body like us. But it means he understood God. We use the same language today. If you're saying something complicated, I'm like, hold on, say it again. And then I understand, I say, oh, I see what you're saying. I don't see what you're saying. Your, Your words are invisible. But now I understand. So when David's saying, I understand you, it's like the eyes of the heart in the New Testament. I see you, I understand you. So he's looking back at a time where he was hungering and thirsting for God. He came into corporate worship and they were worshiping and something he says, I saw, I understood God in a fresh way to be powerful and glorious. And you know, that happens quite often for those who come to worship hungry and thirsty. If we don't come hungry and thirsty, it doesn't happen so much. But, uh, but David's like, I remember that. And boy, do I want to get back to that. So it's in, it's individually and it's in community. And uh, fortunately for David and fortunately for you and me, God is not confined to the sanctuary. He's in the desert and David's like, and I need you, the God I met in the sanctuary now. I want to seek you now in this desert place. Now, if you are in a place where you need to see God, okay, what does that look like? What does seeking mean? At the very beginning, at the very least, we want to say it's, it's active and challenging. Seeking God is both active and challenging. This does not say, oh God, you are my God, I shall find you passively. It says, I will seek you earnestly. It means recognizing that the hunger is deep. If you heard anything I said earlier about hungering and thirsting, and you're like, no, that's not me. I'm not filling my soul with anything. You're not going to get it. <laughs> this, it's not for you right now because you're not listening. It means intentionally turning our mind toward the Lord. It's intentionally turning a, a sense of self-reliance away from ourself and toward the Lord. Meditating on his loving kindness and how it is better than life. It may mean praying, using our communicative ability to talk to the Lord. It might mean meditating on his word that we have. You know, the people in David's time didn't have a copy of the scripture. We have these. Right? we have these in our home. We have these on our phone, though it's not as effective on our phone, but we have we have them at least. Right? We can meditate on these words. It means engaging with our bodies. I'm giving uh, options here, right? So David's talking about his lips, praising him, raising his hands. Sometimes in my own time with the Lord, I will, because a lot of my job is sitting down and writing and reading, I I gotta get out of that posture. I'm gonna get on my knees or on my face. You can lift your hands. You can walk around your neighborhood with your hands raised talking to God. People think you're weird. You are, because you're talking to God. And you've said, I know a loving kindness that's better than life in a world that says there's nothing better than life. It might mean waiting with patience until things become clear. Why? Because sometimes God's slower to answer than they want him to be. <laughs> or because we're hazy and it takes us a long time to figure things out. And it means coming with an attitude that he is to be found and he will make himself available to us. That's what the seeking part is. Now, the earnestly part, I don't know anything in my life that is good that has been easy. I mean, maybe there's a few things, but... Uh, almost all things that are challenging and good in our life. You want to build a business? It's hard, but it's good. Get another degree? Great, but it's hard. You want to get a black belt in karate? Okay, it's hard. A couple couple came to me after the first service and said, hey, we have black belts in karate. I said, great, was it easy? like, no, it took everything. Exactly. Good things are hard. Creating virtue in your life is hard. Becoming the kind of person who will contribute to a good marriage is hard, but it's good. If you play a high school sport, you have a football player in the first service, I've basketball players here. You know, it's like you don't go to your coach, and the coach doesn't say, "Well, you know, do whatever you want. This season we' practice is going to be on you. Whatever you want, you don't want to work hard. That's fine. That's not the way to win." You lay hold of goodness, of winning by working hard. It's good. Good things are challenging. Why is it that we come to the Lord, this loving kindness that's better than everything, we think it should just be pretty easy? I mean, isn't I should passively find it. Because that's not the way it is with anything in life. It's not the way it is with anything in life. So we can say it this way. The loving kindness of God is something that finds us. The loving kindness of God is something that lays hold of you. But our laying hold of the enjoyment of it, the strengthening that comes from it, and the comfort by it is something we do. We lay hold of it as it's already laid hold of us, and we do it actively. Sometimes we do it in response to something that intrudes into our world, whether it's in the middle of the night or in another part of calm in our world. Look at verse 6. When I remember you in my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, or holds, uh, we hold fast, we cling to him. Sometimes anxiety wakes David up in the middle of the night. You get that, some of you, I get that. In seeking God, then means meditating on him in the watches of the night. David can't get up and, like, turn on the TV, right? He's in the middle of the desert. This means, first, meditating on God's help in the past. Verse 7, for you have been my help. Some of you have trouble sleeping. You, wait, you might fall asleep quickly, wake up in the middle of the night. That's my story for about a half to a third of all the nights I've been alive since I was 20 years old. I wake up at like, 2 or 3 in the morning. I think that's bad. On the other hand, I will say that some of my best times in life with the Lord have been in the middle of the night. When I remember this, like, oh, there's something to do here. I'm not going to go work in the garage at 2 in the morning, usually. You know, what can I do? What can you do? When, when something intrudes your evening, your sleep, or maybe your other calm of your day, you're not asleep, but it comes rushing in. You have been my help, verse 7. David's looking back and remembering how God has been his help. All these things, remember all the things in our life that we were concerned about, and then it worked out. That we prayed for, and it worked out, and we thanked God. And then what do we do? We almost always thank God and totally forget about it. Like, oh, that's gone, totally gone. Sometimes we need to live in the past a little bit, in the past of how God's helped us over and over again. We need to write these things down and bring them so we have something to bring to mind in the middle of the night. When David says, you have been my help, I'm thinking back on that. And then meditating on God's heart in our future. You've been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Uh, This is either the uh, picture of a protective mother bird protecting her young or an eagle that's carrying them away. I don't know which image he's drawing on here. Either way, it's a picture of God's commitment to his people for the next day. For right now, and the next day, it's a tender, protective commitment. And the point is, David's saying, I can't, I'm not going to move into the future alone. Friend, if you're in Christ, the things that you're worried about tomorrow, let me tell you the truth. You cannot go into tomorrow alone. It's not possible. You have to go into tomorrow with the Lord. He's with you. Now, we could go in tomorrow like this, like, I can't see anything but me. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't mean you're alone. It just means you're unaware. I get that. I get that. But we cannot, whatever's causing anxiety in the future is not something you are able to face alone. You can't unhook from Jesus if you're in Christ. He is going with you into the future. And he invites us to be aware of it, even in the middle of the night. Of course, on this side of the cross, we see Jesus ultimately committed to this sheltering protection, right? Him giving himself for us at the cross, protecting us from the devil, from the world, and even our own sin. Of course, he's going to go into every other place with us. And finally, meditating on God's hand in the present, verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. This, by the way, is what prevents this whole passage from being an impossible burden This is the term where this is super good news. My soul clings. It's the word that means hold fast in other parts of the Old Testament. It means following closely after. If you like the old King James, the King James Version says, my soul followeth hard after thee. You go this way, I'm going that way, Lord. I'm going this way. Wherever you're going, I'm going with you. Wherever it is, my soul is following right, I'm right on your tail all the way. Through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going with you. It's scary, but I'm going with you. Mountaintop of joy, I'm there with you. My soul follows hard after you. My soul clings to you. How do we do that in the middle of the night? Very practically, we think back of how he's helped us and we consider his heart for us today and tomorrow. That's it. That's how we do it. But why do we do it? Why are we able to do that? He tells us here too, because your right hand upholds me. What's giving us the energy and inclination to do that? The upholding right hand of God. In fact, if, even in this sermon, the last, I, don't, I forgot to start my timer. Sorry. So, uh, in the last 30 minutes or so, if, any, if you've said to yourself, you know what? The loving kindness of God is pretty good. I kind of lied. I didn't thought about it before, but Jesus is rich and he is good. If any of those thoughts have crossed your mind, do you know why that is? Not because they originated with you, but the upholding right hand of God. Energizes you to think these thoughts. We see this all the time and a picture of this all the time. You have a, a mom with like a, maybe a 16-month-old on her hip and if it's like, let's say a little boy, he, he's like, walk into a new area and you, it's a new environment and he's a little scared. I don't know what's going on here. I'm a little scared. So what does he do? He grabs mom closely around the shoulder or around the neck. And his closeness to mom says, you know what? It's okay. I'm in this environment, but it's okay. I feel her. She's close. I'm okay. I'm good. No more fear. Full security. That's right. Because he's holding on to mom. But why does not he fall to the ground? Not because he's holding on to mom. He's not strong enough to do that. Why does he not fall to the ground? Because mom's holding on to him the whole time she's upholding him giving him the ability to hold close to her his holding close to her is what gives him the security but his security is actually in the fact that she's holding him all the time friends this is your life if you're a christian jesus upholds you the right hand of god upholds you it's this great interplay that we see in philippians 2 where paul tells the philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work to you, in, work in you to work and will for His good pleasure. He holds you so that you may hold on to Him and enjoy him. Covenant love holds you so that you may take hold of it and enjoy it. So in the first eight verses, the situation has not changed. He's still in the desert. Saul still wants him dead. He still doesn't know how it's going to end, and 400 people are still looking to him and say, lead us. But his hope begins to change as he meditates, apparently, on this covenant love. He has a defiant hope here that's fueled by three convictions we'll look at briefly. Verse 9, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go down into the depths of the earth, They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey to foxes. The first conviction is this. Justice will eventually prevail. We are in the middle of a story that ends well. And in fact, we don't read this in a historical vacuum, guys. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. We know what has happened. The cross has come. Jesus has come. He's broken the power of death at the cross. And in the resurrection, we know that now. We know that justice will prevail because, in some way, justice has already prevailed. That's what we see at the cross and in the resurrection. Jesus prevailing over the world, our own sin, and the devil. One way to think about that, I'm not fully worked up on this illustration yet, but it's something like this The cross is both the sign that justice will prevail in the earth and the accomplishment that guarantees it. It's the sign that justice will prevail and the accomplishment that makes justice prevail. I think of it like this. If you go take to a fireworks show, take your kids to a fireworks show perhaps, at the very end often they wait for a second and then they'll have these series of like single flash concussive sounds, you know, shh, bah, shh, shh, bah. And so you see it and then it hits you later because you're far you know, from it and the, the sound takes a while to get to you. So you see the sign, you see the explosion, and then the sound gets to you, and you live in the in-between there, just for a second, depending how far you are from it. That explosion that you see is both the sign that that sound is going to get to you, and the accomplishment of the thing that creates the sound of getting to you. It's a sign and the accomplishment. And here's a second you're in the in-between. Right now, we're in the in-between of the justice that will cover this earth eventually. The sign of it is Jesus walking out of the tomb on Easter morning. It's the sign of it and the accomplishment of it. Death has been destroyed. We are in the middle of a story that ends well, though in the middle of it, uh, we're we're waiting. Justice will prevail and has prevailed, and the king will reign, and now we see that he does reign. Verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God, in God. We never want to forget that these psalms are also on the lips of Jesus. In fact, over the years, we've called this, going through the journey through the psalms, the songs of Jesus. He inspired these things originally. He sang them in his own ministry, meditated on them in his own ministry, and then gives them to us to to shepherd and shape us. So the king will rejoice in God does mean David will rejoice in his kingship. Yes, he will take his throne and begin to reign. David will do that. But that's not the fullness of this all. There's another king that will take his throne and begin to reign. And we, right now, that's part of our confession. Jesus has taken his throne and begun to reign. And we're in the in-between on that too. But it's already happened. We're just in that, waiting for that concussive reality where that kingship is demonstrated fully throughout the earth. And then finally, those, the people will glory in him and do. Everyone who swears by him will glory For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. And we're back to the beginning. His people will glory in him because they will be satisfied by him. Our soul will cling to him because he upholds us. And you and I will thirst and be satisfied over and over again because the deepest thirst has already been addressed. When we say, when David says, I thirst for you, this is a thirst that's a refreshing thirst. And we can be confident, guys, that you can always say, Lord, I thirst for you, I hunger for you, and there's something to be found. Always. Always. Why? This one whose life was as valuable as covenant love gave himself for us. The theme of thirst in the book of John doesn't end with John 7. You may know this. In John 4, he says, look, the whole world thirsts. In John 7, he says, those who come to me thirst." And in John 19, look at these words on the back of your insert again. John 19, 28. This is Jesus on the cross at the very end. He's been crucified. Our sin is upon his shoulders. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I thirst. Thirst in John is a spiritual longing, and for the first time ever, Jesus, in his humanity, suffers separation from the Father and says, I thirst. So that you and I never have to thirst again and always have a river of living water to come to, to be satisfied. One of the ways we enjoy that on a weekly basis is coming to the communion table, where Jesus now, in his kingly reign, as we're in heaven, stands and says, come, come. Come and be satisfied. If you're in Christ Jesus, united to Him by faith, I would invite you to come to this table and taste and drink.